So I'm going to talk today um, about the world, the kingdom, and living as salt and light. So it's an exploration of those two things and what we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, are called to do and how we're called to live. When I told Michelle I was going to speak in church today, her only advice was don't make it too deep. <laughs> so I hope I haven't made too much of a, a big meal of it and, uh, and, and I hope you'll understand what I'm trying to say. So the main, the main uh, verse here is salt and light. And um, it's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This verse comes from perhaps the single greatest teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. It's three whole chapters of, of Matthew. Uh, it was a direct revelation from the mouth of God. In it, Jesus is telling us what the law of the Old Testament means. He tells us he's not come to overturn the law, or to change it in any way, but to fulfill the law. He gives explanation to it and the teachings that had already been given in the Old Testament. And Jesus is correcting some worldly interpretations of the law by the Pharisees and is also giving some additional explanation as to the spirit of the law. You know, in order to make obedience to the law easier, the scribes and the Pharisees were restricting the commandments and extending the permissions of the law. I know as a police officer of 30 years, people are always trying to evade justice and find loopholes in the law, to bend the law. And in applying the law, no matter how tightly it's defined, there are always grey areas in its practical application. We have to look at not only what the law says, but the spirit of the law, what the law intended. We use discernment. Well, the Pharisees made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. That seems to be what's going on in some parts of the church today, conforming to worldly attitudes and laws. And we need to ask God for wisdom. The Pharisees were self-righteous, hypocritical, and their religious observance of the law and their good deeds were for all, all for show, in order to receive worldly praise and not for the glory of God. Their motives were all wrong. We are called to be different from the Pharisees. Jesus' main message in the sermon is that God is our loving Father who sees and cares about the heart. Not just its external righteous deeds and religion. It is the attitudes and motives behind our words and actions that interest him most. Much of what he says in the sermon is about the attitude of our hearts. This is different from the world that looks at the superficial and the surface. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is an important distinction between the, how the world sees, sees and how God sees us. So I've told you it's those three things, the world, the kingdom, and living as salt and light. So I'm going to start with the first one, the world. 
If we are called to be different from the world, let's just take a look at what it means to be worldly. It is first and foremost, of course, a world that rejects God. A fallen world in which there is a vacuum of meaning. In 1 John 2, 15 to 18, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. If you read the newspapers or watch the news, or worse, use social media, uh, Michelle often tells me off for having Twitter battles. Um, actually, at this point, I was going to um, do my social media joke about tweeting others as you wish to be tweeted. <laughs> but but Mich Michelle said no one would get it, and it was too corny, so I won't do that. If you've noticed, the secular world seems to focus on the outward appearance, our righteousness on show. Identity politics is the current flavor of the month. Our race or our gender or our sexuality or our preferences or how we identify today, what pronouns should be used, our freedom to express ourselves in any way we like, we claim our human rights without any obligations or responsibilities and without truth. It's a world that says we define ourselves, not God. We make the world into our own image. It's a very self-centered worldview, and a dangerous one too. In the last century, philosopher Frederick Nietzsche predicted the carnage as we began to reject God in our societies. Two world wars, the unspeakable evil of the Holocaust, and 100 million murdered for an atheist Marxist ideology. Could the world possibly return to this? We've invented new moral codes and definitions of social justice, equality and freedom. But in doing so, we seem to be less just, less equal and less free. There's a tie and hatred and self-righteous hypocrisy. This is a world and a society that trusts in its own wisdom and rejects God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Russian philosopher and historian, who was imprisoned in the gulag labor camps of the Soviet Union, said, that's why all this happened, because people have forgotten God. And he acknowledged, although a victim himself, his own heart before God was partly to blame. He also said this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through the heart of every, right through every human heart and through all human hearts. There seems to be this nasty blame culture where everything is someone else's fault. It says, if they were like us, everything will be fine. It's judgmental, bitter. It's disrespectful. There's no mercy or redemption for those who go against this self-righteous authority. We as followers of Jesus are called to be different, not to be judgeful, judgmental, but loving and merciful. If we do not see our identity as image bearers of God, walking and living in fellowship with him, we are tempted to define ourselves according to other things, such as our politics or our causes. These things can become our idols and our religion. For Christians, our fundamental identity of human beings is derived from our relationship to God. Eternity is written in our hearts. All human beings are created in God's image and therefore bear infinite value and dignity. All human beings have fallen in sin and therefore re require mercy. This is also why we are called to love our neighbours 
not just our neighbours, but our enemies, and pray for them. Jesus tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God isn't concerned about external show. He's concerned about what's in your heart. That's where your attitudes, your words, and actions come from. Guard your heart. So let's look at the kingdom. Um, The word kingdom is mentioned 162 times in the New Testament, mostly referring to the kingdom of God. It would be better if we understood this term not as an earthly kingdom, but as the rule of God. This is a kingdom that transcends time and space. It's brought about by Jesus redeeming God's creation. Not with power and might like earthly kingdoms, but with self-sacrificial love and humility. Uh, When I got a text from Aid asking if I wanted to speak today, I was reading a speech by Martin Luther King Jr., and and I really like this quote. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And isn't it true? Doesn't that describe well how the kingdom or rule of God works? It's opposite to the worldly kingdoms and attitudes, and it begins in each of our hearts when we accept Jesus. John Stott talks about this in his book, reading the Sermon on the Mount. He says, The sermon is wisdom from God, inviting us through faith to reorient our values, vision, and habits from the ways of external righteousness to wholeheartedness towards God. This isn't laying down the law, again, but the gospel or good news. Jesus is is inviting us into life in God's kingdom both now and in the future age. We, the followers of Jesus, are to implement God's kingdom here and now. Uh, And in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, New Testament scholar Tom Wright put it like, like this. He was talking about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And he says, Something has happened in the world of space, time, and matter, as the result of which everything in the world is different. Heaven and earth were brought together, creating the cosmic new temple. God was reconciling the world to himself in the Messiah. It was about the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't mean a place called heaven, but the rule of heaven. That is God's rule coming to birth on earth. Jesus will come again and will bring a new heaven and a new earth. But in the meantime, our vocation is to be close to God, being obedient to his Holy Spirit and letting our light shine brightly in this world to bring truth and light into the dark places. Um, Also in the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, as Jesus taught us, we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we know about the world uh, that we're called to be different from, to be salt and light in. We know about the kingdom of heaven and that it's here and now and in the rule of Jesus in the hearts of all those who wholeheartedly follow him. And now we come to the salt and light. The third thing. How are we to be in this kingdom of God's rule? And I'll just read the verse again. You are the salt of the earth, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the salt and light metaphors indicate our influence for good in the world as followers of Jesus. Jesus used these two metaphors uh, because every homeowner used both salt and light. Salt's got two roles. It was used to preserve fish and meat, and it was also used to add flavor. The world decays like fish or meat, while the Christian presence in society hinders that decay. God intends the most powerful restraining influence to be his own redeemed and righteous people. The effectiveness of that salt is conditional, however. It must retain its saltiness. When we're too mixed with the world, we are not effective followers of God. Our saltiness is Christian character, as described in the Beatitudes, fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we Christians are indistinguishable from the non-Christians, we are useless. And the light of the world, light is a common biblical symbol for truth. When we shine a light on something, we reveal its true character or form. Jesus says we are the light of the world and, in the, in that, um, and that the light is our good deeds. This covers everything Christians say and do because they are Christians. Every outward and visible mark of faith, including their words, deeds, and our compassion for others. When people see these, Jesus said they will glorify God because they embody the good news of his love that we proclaim. Without them, our gospel loses its credibility and our God his honor. So Jesus calls his disciples to have this double influence on the community, arresting decay, that's the salt, and having a positive influence by bringing light into the darkness. God intends us to penetrate the world. Christian salt has to be rubbed in to the secular world around us to stop it from going bad. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be an authentic Christian, an authentic follower of Jesus. I don't want to be any other kind. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and a philosopher. Um, And the reason I respect this quote is because Bonhoeffer lived out his faith. He lived the kingdom way and he died for it too. He knew what it was to stand apart from the world and stand up for Jesus. He stood up for the weak and the vulnerable and against real tyranny. He stood up to Hitler and was murdered by hanging at Flossenburg concentration camp in April 1945, just before the end of the war. He says this about discipleship. When the Bible speaks of following Jesus, it's proclaiming a discipleship which will liberate mankind from all man-made dogmas, from every burden and oppression, and from every anxiety and torture which afflicts the conscience. If they follow Jesus, men escape from the hard yoke of their own laws and submit to the kindly yoke of Jesus Christ. We're just going to look at what Christian salt and light looks like then um, in the Beatitudes. So um, these are the teachings of Jesus just prior to the salt and light verse. Um, And the Beatitudes, they mean supreme blessedness or being blessed with God's favor. Um, Uh, And this is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 12. And I'm just going to cover um, about three of them. 
Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came with him, and he began to teach them. Notice this is addressed to his disciples. I think we need to pay attention. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This doesn't mean people who are laid low by the cares of this world, those who are sad or depressed. This is talking about a humble dependence on God, our own attitudes. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our spiritual poverty before God. To them and them only, the kingdom of God is given. God's rule is a gift, completely free, completely undeserved. It has to be received with the humility and faith of a little child. In 2016, um, you know, I was, I was just two years from retirement and I was diagnosed with terminal stage four cancer. It had spread to my lymph, my bones, my hip, my thoracic spine and my ribs and likely elsewhere. This was like a hammer blow for me and my family. Our world was turned upside down. I was offered some worldly solutions to this. A Reiki therapy in three months' time because the woman who did it was on holiday. Or I could practice mindfulness by rubbing a smooth stone and feeling present in that moment. Uh, or I could have a, a, a CD to listen to with soothing wave sounds, but I didn't have a CD player. Um, needless to say, it was totally inadequate. Um, we laughed about it at the time. <laughs> That's how bad it was. This was my time to reach out to the ultimate reality of God. And that's what I did. I certainly recognized my spiritual poverty before God, and I can tell you uh, that it was a conscious decision to call out to him for help. I was and still am wholly dependent on God. In the time since then, I've been truly blessed by God. He gave me a peace and a love in my heart that can only come from him, a peace the world cannot give. I'm told my cancer isn't curable, but I know nothing is impossible with God. Hallelujah. I've just been up to the Marsden recently, the Royal Marsden. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Whether he heals me or not, I know he promises to all who believe his kingdom. He's given me an inner healing that is ongoing every day. This is a healing of rebirth and a change of heart, a change that's available to all of us if we humbly and simply ask. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. As a police officer, being a peacemaker or keeping the peace goes with the job title. And as a judo black belt and a forced rugby player, I have to confess that my attitude to those who would harm me or others wasn't always entirely peaceful. <laughs> Perhaps a little confrontational at times, so this is another hard one for me. I'm learning very slowly with God's help. I found that going to the same house to deal with the same issues time and time again because people were unable to live peaceably with one another severely tried my patience. God must have infinite love and patience with us. Every Christian is called to be a peacemaker both in the community and the church. Jesus made it clear that we should never seek conflict, no one be responsible for it. So far as it depends on us, we are to live at peace with those around us. And peace means reconciliation, and God is the author of both peace and reconciliation. God's peace isn't appeasement. It's not peace at any price, as Bonhoeffer discovered. 
but he made peace with us at immense cost, the price of his only son. It's painful for us to apologise to the person that we've injured or to forgive those who have injured us. True peace and true forgiveness are costly treasures. As I was preparing this, I've been challenged with some very difficult relationships in my own family following the death of my mum last year. It really challenged my heart and caused me to examine my own attitude and motives. But the marvellous thing is that I gave it all to God in prayer. And even just this week, there has been a remarkable reconciliation. He is a faithful God. God let me play a part, but he did what I could not. He alone can change hearts. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The world is engrossed in the pursuit of possessions to the point of exhaustion. Christians have set themselves to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. John Stott says that righteousness has got three aspects, legal, moral, and social. Legal is justification, a right relationship with God. We are made righteous through faith alone, nothing else. Faith in Jesus alone. We can't manufacture it. Moral. Moral righteousness is right living, character and conduct that pleases God. Not the rule-keeping righteousness of the coldly religious, but the warm, inner-driven righteousness that flows from the Spirit within us. God's Holy Spirit. This is the righteousness we should hunger and thirst for. And social righteousness. This seeks to bring justice and freedom from oppression and integrity into the fabric of human culture. Don't we need it now? Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community. Also in this sermon, Jesus teaches about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, an eye for an eye, loving our enemies, our giving, our prayer life, and storing up treasures in heaven. He commands us not to worry, not to judge, and he tells us that if we ask, seek, and knock, he will welcome us with open arms and give us the good gifts, just as we like to give gifts to those we love. In all of these teachings, Jesus talks about the attitudes of our heart. Our heart always follows our treasure. You know, comes back to what, what is the anthem of our heart, doesn't it? Whatever that may be, what is our treasure? Whether it's down to worldly things or looking upwards towards heaven. The heavenly treasures are the ones that don't fade away. They are the development of our Christ-like character. We can't take anything else to heaven but ourselves, so it seems daft to set our sights anywhere else. It's a choice between living the living creator God and any object of desire that we view as wealth. He promises if we trust in him and turn to him, he will give us everything that we need. And he does. We murder not only when we kill, but when we hate others, or even when we're angry, or we insult them. It blackens our own heart, and it breeds hate. We commit adultery when we lust and let our thoughts run without check. And rather than tit-for-tat revenge, taking an eye, we are to turn the other cheek. We are even to love our enemies and pray for them. We must not be judgmental, but show mercy 
and love. That's the way to let our light shine to the glory of God. Because God shows us mercy, that is why we are to show mercy. Because of all he's forgiven us, we are to forgive others. So I'm just going to close now. If we're serious about following God in this new year, with 2020 Holy Spirit vision, then let's be honest with God. He already knows what's in your heart. He just wants you to recognize it. He wants you to receive the full life that he has for you. But you have to choose where you put your heart. It's our choice. There is no compulsion in love. So I've finished what I've got to say today. But if you've never made that decision for God, I encourage you to make it now. You won't regret it. If you've already made it and you're struggling with issues in your life, with illness, with family or other relationships, then I encourage you to pray with someone and lay it before God. Give it to him. If you feel far from God and it may be something you're keeping from him in your heart, come and pray with someone and ask God to reveal it and deal with it. If you need to put things right with someone, ask God to help you put them right. If you're losing your saltiness and you want to alter your course, then bring it back to God today. And if you want your light to shine that big bit brighter in your home, your workplace or your life, then simply ask Jesus and fix your eyes on him. Thank you.